Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ways in which you have mercy on us, for your willingness to condescend to us. And we, we thank you most of all for your gracious condescension to us in, in sending us your Son, that, uh, that we might see him and, and, and that he might be known. And though we do not see him now, we pray that you would fill us with your Spirit, that we might know him, we might trust him, and I pray that your spirit would stir our hearts now and open our minds, open our ears and our eyes to, to see and hear and know and to receive him, to love him. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our New Testament text for this morning is, is found in, in Paul's letter to the Colossians, to the the church that had been formed in the city of Colossae. And the general tenor of this letter is one of, of gratitude. It's, it's plausible that, that Paul wrote this letter while he was in prison in response to reports that came to him about the state of the church in Colossae. And despite his imprisonment and absence, the Christians in Colossae had not drifted from the gospel or from the community of saints, and Paul is relieved to hear it. The report that, that Paul received was that the Colossians had come to truly believe the gospel, and it was beginning to bear fruit in their lives. In verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1, Paul credits the Colossians' firm hope in the life to come as the reason for their faith in Jesus Christ and their love for the saints. He writes, We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. In other words, the, the more deeply and personally the Colossians understood the gospel, the more fruit they bore. The more they pondered the hope of heaven, the more firmly they trusted God and freely loved the saints in this world. And this is the the sequence that characterizes the life of faith, understanding and knowledge of God and his work of redemption is what produces fruit in the life of the believer. The, the work of God comes first and the fruit follows, which is why Paul prays for the Colossians in chapter one to be filled with the knowledge of God, that they would have his knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and, and understanding so that they may lead lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him as they bear fruit in every good work and as they grow in the knowledge of God. God's action and our, our knowledge of that action precede and are the prerequisite for lives that bear fruit in ways pleasing to God, which means that one of the most important and primary work that the, the, the Christian can do is to ponder the work of God that brought about your salvation and the redemption of cre creation. Meditating on this, pouring over these things will lead to true and enduring fruit. We're called to many things as Christians, reconciliation, purity, holiness, justice, love, 
But all of these actions can become empty in God's sight, attempts to justify ourselves in the world's or God's eyes if they're not done in response to God's preceding and glorious work of love and redemption in our lives. All of our action is responsive by nature, for it is always God who goes first. He spoke and he set the ball rolling and we've been responding since. And it's with this pattern in his mind that Paul writes this letter to the Colossians and he crams it full of of numerous and varied ways of describing God's kindness to humanity and to his creation through the work of Jesus Christ. Paul wants to give the, the, the Colossians as many ways as possible to view their salvation, like a multifaceted diamond, plenty of food for thought, different ways to look at it. Because he knows that if they meditate on these, then fruit will begin to appear in their lives. Joy will begin to bubble up. And so he piles up image after image with each one uniquely describing God's salvific work. In chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says that we were unable, disqualified to share in the inheritance of the saints, but God made it possible. He enabled us to have a share in the inheritance of the saints. In chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says that we were living in darkness, stumbling through this world as our passions led us here and there, but God rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, a kingdom of light. In chapter 1, verse 14, Paul says that we were lost, but in Christ we were redeemed. And we were guilty, but through Christ we have been forgiven. In chapter 1, verse 21, Paul says that we were estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, but Jesus has reconciled us in his fleshly body through death, so as to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In chapter 2, verse 6, we were poor, but we have received Christ. In chapter 2, verse 13, we were dead, but God makes us alive. In chapter 2, verse 14, we were in debt, but God forgave our debts through the cross. He piles up the images that you might meditate upon your salvation. And finally, the description of God's salvific work that we'll zoom in on this morning in chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says that we were uncircumcised, but Christ has circumcised us. This may seem like an unusual thing to say to mixed company, that whether male or female, God has circumcised you. But you must understand, and we are not talking about circumcision in the flesh here, but a spiritual circumcision of the heart, a circumcision made without hands, as Paul describes it in Colossians. You see, physical circumcision of the flesh was given to Abraham and his children, as our Old Testament reading recounted, in order to mark them off as God's people and heirs of his promises. But this physical act of circumcising the body was always intended to communicate a deeper spiritual reality that as flesh is removed from a person in the most intimate and secret place of their body, God was going to likewise perform a spiritual procedure on the heart in that very secret place. 
in order that his people might willingly and joyfully live in ways that are appropriate for and consistent with those who have been chosen to be God's people and heirs. And this physical procedure given to his people to perform and the spiritual procedure that he performed himself were, were simultaneous. Spiritual grace was conveyed through the physical act of circumcision, which is why it was considered such a reckless act of negligence to delay the procedure. Moses Moses neglected to circumcise his son. And in Exodus 4, we read that this displeased God so much he would have killed the man had not Moses' wife intervened by performing the procedure herself. Of course, it, it it was not guaranteed that every person who received the physical circumcision also received the spiritual circumcision of the heart. There were many within Israel who bore in their bodies the physical circumcision but possessed no faith in their hearts. Faith is always the prerequisite for salvation. But for those who did believe, for those whose hearts would be filled with faith, the act of physical circumcision was a great and abiding comfort to them. For they could accurately say that from eight days old, God had marked them off as his own and had been working in their hearts. In times of doubt, they could look on the outside and be reassured of God's work on the inside. Circumcision was a comfort for the faithful. And it was a calling for everyone who bore that sign on their bodies. It was a calling to deny the pleasures of the flesh and be satisfied with pleasing God instead. The physical circumcision was always calling a person to live an inner life consistent with their outward appearance. And this consistency became a, a common appeal of the prophets when calling the people to repentance. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. This is the demand of Deuteronomy 10. And the prophet Jeremiah writes, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskins of your hearts. Together, these two are saying to the people, look, you're you're circumcised in the flesh, so live like it in your hearts. Circumcision was useful in the life of faith. It was a, a comfort and a calling. So what does it mean for Paul to say that in Christ, Christians have been circumcised? Paul picks up the the image of circumcision in Colossians and he says that the the spiritual procedure of God circumcising the heart has continued in Jesus, but the corresponding physical act of circumcision in the flesh has changed and it's been replaced with baptism. The very thing we're going to be doing in just a little while. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 2 verses 11 and 12. He begins with a description of God's spiritual act of circumcision. In Christ, you also were circumcised with the spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. And in verse 12, he explains when that event of spiritual circumcision took place, when you were buried with him in baptism. These these two events of spiritual circumcision and, and baptism are much more closely linked grammatically than the semicolon in the NRSV communicates if you're reading our few Bible. Baptism is the, the physical act that corresponds simultaneously to the work of God in circumcising our hearts so that we might be enabled from our hearts when faith is present, not only to die with Christ to sin, 
but also in him be raised to live a life consistent with those who have been marked off as his own people. Baptism, therefore, takes the place of physical circumcision in the life of the Christian. The, the symbol is widened in order to include women and Gentiles, but we see that there is a, a, a continuation of much in the symbol. The urgency remained. The Ethiopian eunuch heard the gospel according to the prophet Isaiah and believing in faith that the prophet was speaking about Jesus, he asked to be baptized immediately. Look, here's some water, he said to Philip. What's preventing me from being baptized? So Philip and he went down into the water and, and had him baptized immediately. And this urgency shows up elsewhere in places where we see that baptism was offered to entire households, even though it was a single individual in that household who believed. Lydia believed, and immediately she and her entire household, which presumably included children, were baptized. Also in, in chapter 16 of Acts, the Philippian jailer was converted to Christianity, and the story explicitly says that in the same hour that he believed, in which, uh, he and his entire family were baptized without delay. The same urgency and, and scope of circumcision continued with baptism. There was no delay because it was understood that spiritual grace was being conveyed through the physical act. And children were included because it was understood that baptism is about what God is doing in claiming us for himself rather than an act of self-expression that relies upon our ability to fully grasp or remember the moment. And the usefulness of this sacrament in the life of the believer persists continues to be a comfort and a calling upon those who have this water poured over their heads. It is a, a comfort because the, the Christian can recall their baptism whenever it was and trust that God has promised to do for them on the inside what they experienced on the outside. He will wash us and make us clean. Not with water like we pour over the head in baptism, but with the blood of Christ. Where there is faith, even faith mixed with and tinged by doubts, then God has promised through the waters of baptism to wash us, to set us apart for himself as his people and heirs. He's always speaking this message of comfort through these waters to all who have been baptized. And through these waters, he's also calling us to live lives that are consistent with the fact that we have been washed pure and our bodies are no longer our own, but belong entirely to God to be used for his glory. It was said that Martin Luther, when he was experiencing temptation of, of one kind or another, would suddenly blurt out loud, I'm baptized. And he did that because he was reminding himself of the upward call on his life placed there in the baptismal waters. He was using his baptism. And it is available for you to use it in the same way. These waters of baptism, long dry by now, are calling you to holiness. God has given this sacrament to us as a gift because he loves us. And he, he wants to give us the opportunity to participate with him in the life of faith. God could work exclusively in secret, but he, he wants us to know his love for us and his persistent commitment to us. So he gave us these physical waters in order that we might see on the outside what he's doing on the inside. 
And he could do his work without including us, but he wants us to grow and to, to learn about him. And so he invites us to participate in his gracious and benevolent administration of grace within the church by faithfully and regularly observing the sacraments he has given us, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. He has circumcised your hearts through baptism in order that your cold heart might learn to love what is true and your hard heart might be softened to receive Christ and your closed off and guarded heart might be opened for the spirit to dwell therein. Apart from his intervention, you would be dead, but he has made you alive in Christ and has given you life that will endure beyond death. Think about that. Meditate upon it, and the fruit will follow. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.